This is a 3CR podcast. And this is Published or Not. Depending on how old you are, how do you get on with your mother or how do you get on with your daughter? These relationships are often fraught. Christy Neiman has a mother-daughter relationship as just one of the issues in Where We Begin. Welcome, Christy. Thanks, Jan. Thank you for having me. Well, this is the now. Anna is a teenager doing Year 12. She's very studious because she wants to get into medicine. She's not running amok. So where is the tension in the mother-daughter relationship? Okay, so the, the tension there is quite deeply embedded. And I don't think even Anna knows where it comes from because there are things that are unearthed in her progression through this novel that she does not know at the start and she has not known through her whole life and which have a very, very deep impact on her relationship with her mother. Well, Anna wants to get a 99.95 score. <laughs> because of this, she doesn't have much of a social life, but then there's Nassim. Why is it different with him? she has made this decision that she's not going to have a social life or more specifically, she's not going to be bothered with having a boyfriend because of all the demands that having that sort of a relationship would place on her. But he manages to come at it in a way where those demands, they're not there. And in fact, it's quite interesting to watch her then start to invent reasons (laughs) around why why she shouldn't be doing this and being part of this relationship. Anna's concerned about her year 12 English because not like maths, it's unpredictable. It relies on insight, sensitivity and being articulate. Why is that a problem for her? I think she doesn't trust herself to be those things. I think she's kind of barely cognizant of that. She just has a fear of it. And it comes from this deep mistrust of herself to be able to confidently do those things. And it starts to become apparent that she has not really had good, a good role model mm. in learning those things, in learning insight and sensitivity and reciprocity and all of those human interaction attributes. So instead of talking, the book starts with Anna writing a letter to her mother and leaving. The last words in that letter, I do wish things could have been different. I wish you could have been different. Letters are an important device in this story. And it's a letter to her mother that instigates where Anna decides to go. And here I'd like to ask Christy Neiman from page 29. Okay, so this is a letter to Anna's mother from Anna's mother's mother. And it goes like this. My Kathy, won't you please come home, even just for a visit? You know your room is always here waiting for you. We all would like to see you so much, all of us, especially now. We don't understand why you left. How could you have left us like that? Why won't you answer any of my letters? If you come home, we could all be a family again. We could all have dinner together. It would be like old times. And you could bring my baby granddaughter. I'm old, Kathy. I don't have forever to wait. Why won't you come and visit? I'd like to meet my granddaughter before I die. Don't I deserve that at least? 
your loving mother, Bet. Please don't tell that I wrote. So Anna finds this letter and thinks, right, that's where I'm going. So she goes to her <laughs> grandma, Bet, and her grandpa, Hessel. Where are they living? They're living, it's a fictional place, kind of. Um, it's based very, very heavily on the Moolot Plains in central Victoria, which is kind of a wide, flat plateau between Castlemaine and Maryborough, a big, high volcanic plain. And it's quite a stunning landscape and it's quite a transfigured landscape. So colonisation has had a big impact there, but it is still itself, if that makes sense. You, you have this great feeling of what this landscape is. It's yeah. pretty interesting. The house that they go to, though, is mm. not ah. quite what Anna expected. <laughs> <laughs> it's no. It's so a certain she... smell. <laughs> so Anna thinks she's just going to the country, to a country house and all those things that that conjures. But where she finds herself instead is in a very cheap and not so cheerful fibro house that is on the property of one of the old great estates. And there is another building on that property as well, which becomes quite central to the book. Yeah. So it's in this property that Anna realises her grandma, Bet is a bit of a hoarder. So there's things everywhere and there's mice poo everywhere and as you say in close proximity there's a much bigger house a victorian farmhouse mansion so why aren't they living there well if anyone has ever had anything to do with these big old victorian mansions a lot of upkeep heating it would be so difficult and this is an old couple they don't have the time or the money or the energy really to do it up and because it had actually been a dream of um, Bet and Hessel's earlier in their lives to do it up but various pitfalls and circumstances Mm. and temperaments led to the decrepitude of that place well them, them not being able to counter that decrepitude and as well as the decrepitude of their own house and lives, really. Mm. Well, Anna settles into her mother's old bedroom and we get a break in the book here, which is called Here. This part of the book has Kathy's voice, Anna's mum. Mm. She's in the bedroom back in 1996. The music of Madonna is playing. She's with friend <laughs> Becky, who knew her so well. Becky was able to say about Kathy, oh, she's an expert in doing what she likes, despite rules <laughs> and opposition. We also learn about her organisation abilities, especially when it comes to secret cake days. And it's on these days, Kathy sees her mum, Beth, in a completely different way. How? Kathy's mum, Bet, this is Anna's grandmother, who she's just met, lives a fairly shut down existence. And so Kathy kind of takes up the shortfall where it, where it comes to her little brother. But on these secret cake days, so this is the one moment where Kathy's, Kathy's beautiful love for her brother kind of erupts and she kind of takes charge of her brother's little brother's birthdays and she gets bet in on the secret um and bet kind of 
comes alive. It's like she's basking in the glow of this this kind of loving act. Yeah, there's a there's the beginnings of a relationship there. I think you described it beautifully. The, a great fun mum instinct kicking in. <laughs> But it's yeah. Well, now back to now. The first locals Anna meets are Leone and her son Basil. Now, why do they drop in? Well, they call themselves old family friends. Well, Leone does. Anna is a little suspicious of this because they don't seem to be entirely welcomed by Hessel, at least. But they have a connection with Anna and her family that Anna doesn't know about um so they are of course very very curious about anna and very interested to meet her which also doesn't really put anna at her ease if she doesn't know what's behind that no well leone says i quote from the book i've known your family for a long time all your women are bloody weird and secretive (laughs) always thinking they need to shut up and go it alone so Leone warns her to be careful. Anna's not worried about things, but things are certainly different. What happens on Wednesdays in the Dutch room? Um, Coffee. (laughs) Coffee in the Dutch room. So we're in this strange little decrepit hoarder's house. Hessel is an expat Dutchman who came over in his 20s. In this run down stinking little house there is one room that is crowded but clean Mm. and which has all the artifacts of a well-to-do dutch gentleman and he presides over coffee in there every wednesday morning a great dutch tradition which i've had the pleasure of having in less strange circumstances (laughs) with various dutch friends but he presides over this tradition as if it is almost a bastion between him and the primitive culture he sees around him of Australia. Um, And poor Bet has to run around making this happen for him. Anna's decided to set up a study in the big house. Hessel has warned her not to go up the stairs because they're unsafe. Basil also suggests that the big house may be haunted. Now, look, this Basil, he is such a delightful character. (laughs) Christine Newman, where did you conjure up Basil from? I don't think I did. Basil did all the work himself, really. He just rocked on up and decided that everyone was taking themselves a little bit too seriously and he was going to lighten the tone a bit. (laughs) (laughs) He certainly does that. Where they're all living is really quite remote and the phone connection is very bad. So Anna jumps at the chance to drive Bet into hospital and the doctor who treats Anna also says, asks Anna to be very observant but it's also in town and it can finally get download. There are so many messages from Nassim. What does Nassim think is happening? So at this point, Anna is kind of, she's venturing into unknown territory, really. She has actually fled to this area in a bit of a state of distress. She has begun to lie to Nassim, which is something she's never done before. Um, And once she's in it, she 
she flounders really and doesn't know how to either come clean or make a clean break or so she just kind of gently spools out appeasing messages to Nassim. Not that he's, he's a very, very respectful and um, young man giving her all the distance that she needs. But at this point, the distance has just become really quite marked and he's confused and he, he doesn't know where she is. And in fact, for a while, he doesn't actually even know that she's gone. She's dancing this line really with him between treating him with respect (laughs) um, and honesty and dealing with her own distress. She's finding it very hard to find a bridge between those two things. So open questions here. Why doesn't Anna's mum have anything to do with her parents? And it's through Leonie that Kathy finally finds out where Anna is. The subtitle of this book is The Past is Waiting and the answers are all there. However, there is a term that you use that I'd like you to explain and that's silent entitlement. Mm. I kind of think this is the linchpin of this book really because there are a few things going on Mm. at once in this book. There are a few histories going on. There is the history of this family and there is the history of the landscape and the history of the country. And the thing that ties them together is intergenerational trauma, really, caused by acts of violent entitlement by colonists and people further back in Anna's family. So this whole story and all of these characters kind of circle downwards whether they know it or not from these acts of violent entitlement in the past so I think in the novel I was really trying to just illustrate the hard truth of that because I feel it is a very true thing Mm. I thought it was done very well especially using Basil as the conduit to, to explain it all Look, another topic written into the story is teenage pregnancy, the different choices and where information can be found and the differing views on terminating pregnancy, depending on what you read. Now, another quote. Depending on what you read lays somewhere between committing murder and cutting your toenails. It was pretty gutsy writing. (laughs) Oh, thank you. I think it's gutsy because it doesn't get talked about. I don't know that's inherently gutsy because I think there is so much everyday female experience in it. The way women think about their bodies and about that process or anyone with a uterus thinks about that process is it's such a spectrum and there are so many interests that make themselves vested where perhaps they shouldn't be. Good conversation to be had, as well as Mm. that violent entitlement too. A mother is too full of shame and a daughter is too full of anger. When the past secrets meet the secrets of the present, there may be forgiveness in Where We Begin by Christy Neiman. Well done, Christy. (laughs) Thank you, Jan. Lovely summation there. And now it's David's turn. 
In May 2018, George Pell, a cardinal in the Catholic Church, was ordered to stand trial over multiple sexual offence allegations. Melissa Davey, in her forensic account of the trials that followed, documents what led up to those proceedings and the ensuing aftermath. So, Melissa, welcome to 3CR. Thank you for having me. Now, you've gone into great detail about the initial trials, which centred around the allegation that Pell sexually abused two choir boys. It was known as the Cathedral Trial. Now, we haven't got time to go into the details as you have gone into them, but the jury couldn't reach a consensus when it was first tried, so it was declared a mistrial. The retrial then finds Pell guilty by unanimous verdict. What was the difference, in your opinion, between the two trials that led to that outcome? can be really subtle differences that um, can, can be hard to, to pinpoint. So um, obviously when there is a mistrial, it means something has gone wrong. Um, things can't be the same when you do the trial again or you risk getting the same result. So both parties slightly tweaked their opening and closing addresses to the jurors, for example. Um, there was a, an extra witness brought in, Daniel McGlone, for the retrial. Um, there is a different way of presenting the evidence. I mean, of course, the evidence does not change, um, and there are very, very strict rules about how that evidence can be presented. But there are tweaks here and there um, of course, the, the jurors are different as well. Um, so all of those factors combine um, for a different trial. What seems to be forgotten was the second set of charges, which was called the swimmers trial. This pending trial mean, meant that nothing could be reported. And then the swimmers trial was later dropped. But I'm just wondering about the adequacy of the legal system in addressing and judging sexual abuse cases. If material can't be presented, if things are said in camera, what's your take on that? You know, I think there's, a, there's this idea that there can be a perfect police investigation with inscrutable evidence and presented to jurors in a way that's really clear and concise and, and easy to understand. And it's just not the way the legal system works. So all kinds of things can happen. Um, it's not necessarily that evidence is being hidden from jurors or that something sneaky has occurred, though, of course, um, there are strategy, strategies at play from both parties. But sometimes witnesses change their mind about giving evidence or witnesses pass away or something happens that's beyond the legal party's control. And so all of these factors mean that it's not a free-for-all. You know, I think from watching um, movies or from reading um, fiction, you can get an idea that a cross-examination, for example, of a witness is a bit of a free-for-all. You can really um, almost badger the witness and put anything to them. It's just not how it works. There are very strict rules that both parties have to adhere to and work within. And that just means that this idea that you can present a case in a certain way or in the way you want, it doesn't always happen that way. Now, to say whether that's flawed or not, I mean, I think the legal system in Australia has been developed over many, many years and there have been all kinds of reforms in recognition that it's very, very hard if you're a victim of sexual abuse or assault 
to even get to trial. Uh, I think there is increasing recognition of that. But is it perfect? And is it um, necessarily going to be a satisfactory process every time? No, of course not. Um, and I hope that this book kind of shows some of the difficulties of this idea that we can get it to a, a perfect system where justice is really adequately done every single time. There are one or two moments in this book when the reader gets a glimpse of some of the personalities involved in these trials. Pell's comments when he was interviewed by the Royal Commission and by Australian detectives, where he likens the Catholic Church to a trucking company, and Richter's comment, that's Pell's lawyer, about vanilla abuse, seem to show a remarkable indifference for victims. Now, this troubles me more than the trials themselves in many ways. We've got to separate Pell and Richter here a bit. I mean, Robert Richter is a very experienced defence barrister. Um, and in his world, I suppose these kinds of comments, like uh, certain types of alleged defending being vanilla in category, um, obviously an outrageous comment. But these are the kind of comments that are made in courtrooms all the time. Um, it's improving a bit. Um, but... Richter was kind of just doing what defence barristers do, and that's not to excuse it, but um, he was in a position where this time around, obviously, the, the media um, spotlight was on, on the trial. Um, so he has a job to do. I think um, with Richter, just purely the fact that he was defending Pell painted him in a particular light um, in the minds of the public, but wouldn't it be awful if suddenly only certain people had the right to a defence? And who decides that anyway? And, you know, Richter had a job to do. And actually, um, there are people I've spoken to who work in the space of um, justice and assault who have very good things to say about Richter, who say that um, away from the courtroom, he is a compassionate man. He gives a lot of money to good causes and charities. He volunteers a lot of his time pro bono to people who would never otherwise be represented. Um, so um, that is not to excuse um, his comments or to say that they would not have been distressing to victims. But I hope that I am painting some of the complexity of these people and the role that they play, their function. When it comes to Pell and his comments, I mean, gosh, that it's so different to me because this is an institution, the Catholic Church, that we now know has been responsible for horrendous criminal acts against children, crimes. And the way that he came into giving evidence at the Royal Commission, some of the comments he, he made, I remember just sitting there thinking, has this man even been briefed? Did he even have someone, if he couldn't do it himself for whatever reason, listening into the Royal Commission evidence, hearing from victims and saying, look, you know, this is what this victim has said about the church and, and how they're feeling. And, and when you come to give evidence, you know, you should know that this is what's been said. If you imagine, for example, any other person in a position of power called in to give evidence for any reason at a child sexual abuse trial or inquiry, whatever it is, imagine a principal for a school, for example, you'd think that person would be really, really up to date on the research. They would be going through all of their procedures and protocols before standing up and, and answering questions. They'd be so well briefed and so well informed. And I had this sense watching Pell that he just hadn't even read up 
like and, and and there is just no excuse for being that ignorant in this day and age when you have thousands of people worldwide saying this is what the church did to me and this is how it affected my life and you have proof of that i mean we have so much proof now to stand up and say certain abuse was a sad story of not much interest to him well i'm sorry you are a senior figure within the catholic church it is your interest it is your responsibility and to say something like that with the media and the public watching was just extraordinary to me and i think inexcusable it speaks to the notion of pastoral care and how the church promotes their interest and care for their parishioners but my last point relates to the last two chapters of your book victims and perpetrators to get a true understanding of the behavior in question we have to also go beyond what is admissible in court the psychological profiles in some ways of the those involved case studies the research etc we know what happens and why uh, when people abuse the power but we don't seem to have the mechanisms to be able to eliminate it I think what the five-year Royal Commission inquiry into child sexual abuse in institutions did was really say, actually, we do have a lot of evidence. And it identified gaps in the research. And then what was really amazing about the Royal Commission was it then commissioned experts to fill those research gaps and provide reports. Um, There was some really revolutionary research that involved asking children um, about their experiences, for example, in residential care. So hearing from children themselves in in research was really um, interesting and often there are ethics um, concerns around that, but researchers managed to um, grapple with that and and do some really interesting research. So I think um, this idea that we can't stop it is not for any lack of research or knowledge. It's because of an unwillingness or an ignorance from institutions and individuals to do what needs to be done to keep children safe. Because what I want people to take away from this book is that this is not historical and it's not just institutional. Abuse of children is happening right now, today. It's happening in residential care. It's happening in the youth justice system. It's happening in homes. And this idea that it's too big or too hard or impossible to stop is not right. It can be stopped but it just takes an understanding of the research and a willingness to make institutions child safe to get there. It is our duty as individuals and as a society to look, you know, not to look away, but to look, to read that research, to engage with the findings, to understand the latest evidence and to destroy some of the myths around children. The book is The Case of George Pell. It's a scribe publication, very detailed in its analysis of the trials and its overview. So, Melissa, thank you very much for talking with me today. Thanks so much for having me. Well, Jan, that takes us out for another week. And look, more books to read for next week, more authors to chat with. Despite the travails of uh, coronavirus and such like, we will do our best to keep bringing you more authors next week. See you then. Well, let's talk then. (laughs) (laughs) You've just been listening to Published or Not on 3CR.